Good morning. Nobody's awake. I did that at the 9.30 and everybody was like, hmm. So, good morning. There we go. Uh, it's my honor to uh, fill in for Robert. Um, so again, I'm not the pastor, so if this falls flat on your ears, please come back and uh, listen to, to Robert. But uh, he's getting some, uh, you know, rest is important, even to the pastor. We have unrealistic expectations that we place on our leaders sometimes, and um, he needs that, and it's our, our privilege to give that to him. So this, today we're going to be talking about worship in the church. We've been walking through First uh, Corinthians, and we found out a number of things about the church in, first, in Corinth, in First Corinth, like there was a second, um, in Corinth. <clears throat> they had a lot of problems and a lot of misunderstandings about many things, but let's be honest, every church has a lot of problems and misunderstandings about things. So we can gain a lot from that. We've talked a lot about the context of Corinth and some of the things that they were exposed to in their culture and how they're dramatically different from today. I doubt anybody in the city or wherever you're from that you've ever had to wrestle with uh, food that's been dedicated to the sacrifice of idols and eating that. Um, Although, I don't know, Gluckstadt, Madison, you may have a problem. Actually, I'm from Terry. We would be the ones doing that, probably. Um, but that's quite different than what, in our culture, we would be exposed to today. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, there are a lot of complex issues that are going on. And a lot of com complex problems that, uh, that they were having with some of the expressions of their worship, particularly as they came together as a body and tongues and prophecies and we're not going to get in the weeds in that I hope but I think what we can do is we can see that the types of things that they were struggling with as they were trying to or as Paul was trying to have them distinguish themselves as a community of believers there in that culture that we could find examples that speak to us with that. So I want to start off and have you think about something as we think about worship. I want you to think of a spectacular event or something that happened in your life. Maybe it was your child did something. They had some artwork that they brought to you that was very, you know, just sort of eye-opening or that smile on your face that, that occurred when they did something. Or maybe it was something that you witnessed like uh, that was just majestic, like at a national park or something like that. Think about that idea and hold on to that. And think about your emotional response to that. What welled up inside of you and then was expressed externally. And then I want, you, I want to show you this picture here. If, if you're having, if you're grasping at that, my friend Josh McAlpin sent this this morning. And this is his friend, Chin Chingguang. I don't know if they're friends, but this was, that's the photographer's name. So Chen Qingguang took this, and it's sequential images. That's not like seven ospreys diving into the water, one after that. That would be in formation. Maybe they're at war or something. But uh, this is one, but you see that he artistically has arranged it so that we can see this osprey right before it enters the water to catch a fish. And that's just amazing to me to think about that, the angle, the trajectory, just the dynamics of that. I mean, who would ever think watching an osprey fly that right before they hit the water, they would look like that? That looks like some kind of alien creature in some ways, right? So we're exposed to all kinds of things in the world, and some of those deal with ourselves, things that happen to us, things that happen to somebody else, where we have an outward expression, right? Right? 
And in some ways, that's very indicative of worship. We give an expression of something that we've been exposed to and a notice of that. And in this case, I look at this and say, man, isn't God amazing? We've been singing about that this morning and declaring that through song and through scripture, that God is someone who can do this in an animal, right? So there are three things that I want us to talk about this morning as we think about worship in the church and worship in our own lives. The first is the concept of we are born worshiping. All of us are born worshiping. The second is the expression of worship in our lives. And the third is the chorus of worship as we come together. Now, I've, about uh, 20 years ago, this book was written. It's made a big impact in my life. It's called Unceasing Worship by Harold Best. And I would recommend this to you, particularly the first half of the book deals with a lot of the things. I'll have a couple of quotes from, from Harold Best in this book. But he really deals with the subject of worship, and he goes into great detail of that. The latter half of the book, if you're you know, involved in the arts or have an appreciation of the arts at all, you might want to check out at least the last half of the book because he does get into the specifics of how our expressions of worship in the arts sort of play out and how they can be washed with Scripture in a way that is honoring to God. So the first thing we're going to talk about is we were born worshiping. I would put it to you that every single one of you, from the moment that you were born, started worshiping and have not stopped to this day. Every single one of us, when we're born, we have a continuous outpouring of ourselves to either something or someone. Every one of you who's had a child knows this is true, right? There's that continuous outpouring of this little one in a smile or the way that they interact with you. Sometimes you would think that they have satanic influences in their life, but that's hopefully transient. Um, but there's this continuous outpouring from the time that we're born that we apply that to either something or someone, and it doesn't stop, and it goes on. So it's a continuous outpouring. I get that from... Harold Best sort of definition of that. So that's an interesting concept if you, th concept if you think about that. <clears throat> and it's universal. Everybody worships. It's not that some people worship and some people don't worship. Maybe you're sitting there and nobody's thinking you're worshiping. You're worshiping something. We should revisit this concept. If you don't believe me right now, we'll revisit it in, in November, okay, on a Saturday or a Sunday, depending on which team is playing when, and let's see when your favorite team is playing, say, football, if we can apply this to worshiping. We outpour ourselves towards something or someone. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We'll see the application of worship as, it, as we worship God a lot of times spills over in how we interact with other people, right? So it's continuous, it's universal, and it is relentless and continuous as a reflection of the Godhead. So as we are created in God's image, and because every single one of us is born with a capacity to worship and express ourselves, we misplace it on different things and with a different emphasis, but it is totally an expression of our being created in the image of God. So let's look at that a little bit. So the first is in how God describes himself. So if you look at God the Father, this is in Exodus chapter 3. Prior to this, God has largely defined himself as his relationship with his people. 
in relationship to his people. So he says, Adam, where are you? I want to be with you. I want to walk with you. What's going on? Uh, Abraham, he, he says that he is the friend of Abraham, right? He is the God of, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's the relationships with which he defines himself. When Moses, right before Moses, or as Moses is being commissioned by God and being called by God to lead the people and to be the representative of God, Moses is terrified and asks God, who am I going to say is sending me? Because there's a lot of gods out there, particularly in Egypt, right? You can't like stumble sideways and not run into a god in Egypt. So here's what God tells him. And this is the first time that he said it this way. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this, this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So this is a little bit of a strange way of talking about yourself, right? It reminds me of like, those of you who are old enough, remember like Bob Dole when he would speak and he said, Bob Dole is for this. Bob Dole is, you know. So what is God saying here? He's saying that he exists, he will continue to exist, and that he will continue to do things. And he's about to demonstrate that in a big way to the children of Israel and to Egypt, right? I am. What else does he have to say? This is also the reason you remember why the Pharisees and the Sadducees had such a big problem with Jesus when he would answer questions about who he is by saying, I am. And they would fall down or they would tear their garments. And they were like, well, that's a strange thing to do with Jesus. They must have been really mad at him. Yeah, because they understood that he was placing himself on equal footing with God at that point. So God himself continuously outpours himself and all that he is and demonstrates that in all the universe and to us individually and corporately. But we can take this a step further. Remember, if continuously expressing ourselves and outpouring in a relentless kind of way as part of the Godhead, what about Jesus? So we're going to look at um, Colossians chapter 1. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, talking about Jesus, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So all you physicists out there looking for the common force and equation to explain all of life, there it is, right? That last statement. We used to talk about that in college. It's like, this is it. This is that unifying force right here. It's Jesus. Does this sound like a static God who just sent his son and he died for us and then he's just sort of waiting around? This is talking about Jesus, that he is continuously outpouring himself and everything is created. He is the part of the Godhead that God is pleased to say by and through him all things were created. Even things that, you know, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all of these. And he's before all things and he holds all things together. That to me sounds like a God who is pouring himself out. And ultimately he pours himself out on the, on the cross for us, right? So we have God the Father continuously outpouring, Jesus the Son continuously outpouring. You can help me with this one. So we have four Gospels, right? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. What's the next book in the Bible after John in our canon? Acts. Thank you. Participation. So Acts, right? Acts of whom? The Apostles. Somebody said it, Holy Spirit, right? Yes, it's the act of the apostles through the Holy Spirit. 
That was actually the original intent of the book, like the title that they gave it, right? So the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the church. And that's what you find from the outpouring at Pentecost of God's Spirit on individual people. Then you continually see the Holy Spirit working through the church in Acts. And we see the acts of the Holy Spirit through that, continuously outpouring. We have God the Father that has set himself up and identified himself as the I am who does and demonstrates it. We have Jesus that continually does that, and now we have the Holy Spirit that does that. And as we are made in his image, we reflect the capacity to do that. What a wonderful gift that we have to worship and a great responsibility that we have to worship. So we do have to ask the question, what is true worship, right? Because worship, we can, we can assign all kinds of labels and definitions, and we're probably going to choose one that aligns with how, what our preferences are and what we think, right? Like, well, that's worship and that's not worship, you know. That type of musical thematic presentation is not really worship. Um, don't really care for that. More of a preference type thing. So... How do we define it if we have all these different preferences of what is and what is not worship? Um, I've had the privilege of going to several different countries and, and being a part of a, of a gathering of believers in worship. And I can tell you, it's quite different if you haven't experienced that. Many of you have experienced that in other places. For instance, I can remember it, prayer as a form of worship. And in most other countries, outside of this one, you don't have one person praying and everybody else sort of listening or silently praying. Everybody prays at once. And when it's in a different language, it really does, it's quite powerful and overwhelming and strange to experience that, right? So what is true worship? Well, thankfully, Jesus has helped us out with this one and he's defined this. So remember, Jesus, uh, he's with his disciples and he wants to go through, actually, he says, I'm, I have to go through Samaria. Like it's on his agenda and he has to go through there. And he knows that he's going to meet at least one woman at a well. Now, just to keep in mind, you know, it's not just because they were geographically different. It wasn't like, again, Terry, Gluckstadt, Madison coming together, you know. It was much, much deeper in the divisions between the Samaritans and the Jews. So this goes back, way back in the 400s B.C. when the Jews came back from the exile from Persia <clears throat> and they were building the temple. The Samaritans had been the Jews who stayed and they had intermarried with some of the other people that came and invaded them. And when they intermarried, they continued to, to worship God, but they also worshiped other gods of the gods that came with the other people. So they were sort of pantheistic. The Jew, they offered the Jews, the Samaritans, hey, we'll help you rebuild the temple. You know, you're going to need some help. And the Jews, for good reasons, said, thanks, but no thanks. We don't want you to help us because we don't want to like have, we want to make sure that this is for God and not for all the other gods that you worship. Well, that created a big division of racial bigotry and mistrust and uh, discrimination between both of them. So you had two groups and the Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds and traitors because they had not remained pure. And the Samaritans didn't care too much for the Jews, right? So they really would pass each other on the street and get as far away from each other or not go through the town. So that's the enmity that is, that is between them, much like our culture in some ways, right? So what is true worship? So John chapter 4 is this interaction with the Samaritan woman. Now, 
Jesus, as a great physician, has begun to tear away, peel away these bandages and these coverings on this woman's wounds to get to the true meat of the matter about what she needs and what's really going on with her. And as part of this, if anybody's ever made you uncomfortable or Jesus or God has made you uncomfortable, you know that uh, we try to stiff arm that sometimes, right? Like, don't get near me with that. Like, hold on now, Jesus. Number one, you're a Jew. So she does the very thing. She brings up the very thing in conversation that she knows would be a division between them, which is a religion, right? Like, let's talk about this. Let's put that out there, and then he'll go away from me is what she's probably hoping. So she asks him this. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. That's Mount Gerizim. When they couldn't participate in building the temple, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And the Samaritans worshipped there. The Jews worshipped in Jerusalem and never the twain met. Okay? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say, Jesus, that in Jerusalem, that's the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. These are deep concepts that have broad application to the questions she asked about worship and the questions that we should ask about worship. Because she was convinced that we worship this particular way, on this particular place, at this particular time on Mount Gerizim. You Jews worship this particular way on this particular place in, uh, uh, sorry, Mount Gerizim in Jerusalem. Totally separate, right? Jesus says you miss, you miss the point. The true worship that the Father is wanting is worship in spirit and truth. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can allow us to worship God and to turn everything else that we do as an act of worship, as an act of worship to God. And it doesn't depend on a time and a place. Those are incidental things. Time and location are not important. How easy is it for us to say, we got to worship? And we certainly, we want to worship God in this place together, individually. My, my prayer, our prayer as a church for you is that you would encounter God weekly as a part of the worship at Fondren Church. But if you stop there, you are missing the totality of what God has made you for. You are scratching the surface of what God wants to do as an expression of worship. And you have not opened your life to the concept we just read in John chapter 4 that Jesus says that God is looking for worshipers, true worshipers that work, worship through the Spirit and in truth. Internal manifestation, internal concepts, internal realities in truth that are manifest in our true worship. That can be anytime and anywhere and should be, Right? So that's what true worship is. And it's interwoven with our calling. In Deuteronomy 10, God gives some instructions to the Israelites as a nation about how they should live. He says, you should fear the Lord your God. You should serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear, he is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. God inhabits the praise of his people. 
And this is what, from the beginning, he says, this is why you were made and this is what you should do. And you know what? We can worship him for even the great and terrifying things that he's done. Don't forget that. Even the great and terrifying things, we can praise him because he is God. And he deserves all of our praise. So this is interwoven with our calling, this ability and a calling, really, to praise God through worship in spirit and truth. So we are all born worshiping. We're all made in the image of God. We reflect the Godhead of God outpouring himself as we outpour to God. What's the expression of worship? So look at, let's look at that a little bit. You know, in thinking about this, there's many different examples of what worship is, and certainly what we just experienced is worship of God, but it's not the only worship of God. And I hope you could have this perspective in what you do. And I thought of a couple of different examples from the Bible. <clears throat> you remember King David had a very uh, close friend, Jonathan, who they were best friends and he loved, both of them loved each other as themselves and they were uh, just the best of friends. And unfortunately, in the ensuing things that happened between Saul and David and all the wars, Jonathan was killed in battle. David was devastated that his best friend who he loved was killed. And after things settled down and David was on the throne and his kingdom was secured, he thought about Jonathan and he thought, what can I do to express my love for him. And he said this in 2 Samuel 9. David said, is there, any, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Who is left? And you know, if you know the story, you know that there was Mephibosheth, who was the son of Jonathan's, the only one that was left alive. But Mephibosheth was lame. He was dropped as a child or an infant. We don't know exactly what happened but he was lame. He had to be carried everywhere he went. And he had to be helped. And he couldn't do anything for himself to earn a living. So he depended on every, other people. So what does David do? He says, perfect, find him. He sends his servant Ziba out. And he says, find him, bring him back, and he's going to be with me and I can show love. And this is how he does it. 2 Samuel 9:11. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son, sons for the rest of his life. Get the picture. Mephibosheth is brought in by a servant and he's placed at the table in an honored seat where David's sons are, in between them maybe. And he's pushed up to the table. And he has all the food that he's never had before. He's wearing the clothes that he never had before. It's beautiful outpouring of David's love through caring for him for the rest of his life at David's table. And he was treated as an equal to David's sons. Now, you could say, well, okay, well, he showed love to him. That's not an act of worship. Is it? I think it is. If you don't believe that, Here's another one that, that's maybe a little, bit, a little bit deeper than that. The prophet Elisha in the Old Testament, so he, God gave him uh, the ability to heal people. And uh, the word got out through all the countryside. 
So there was a guy in the uh, Syrian army, his name was Naaman, and he was in charge of the Syrian army, but there was one problem with him. So Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man in his master, with his master in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So what were the consequences of this? He was honored, but he had to stay over there. He was, had leprosy and that prevented him from doing some things. Probably not as much as what the Hebrews would have done to him, but that was his dilemma. So Naaman comes to Elisha and he says, I desire to be healed. And he brings all this stuff with him, this caravan, this money, uh, livestock to pay Elisha for this. He views this as a transaction. And Elisha gives him something easy to do. Uh, Naaman doesn't want to do it because it's not complicated enough. Naaman's servant wisely says, my Lord, if he had told you to do something complicated, you would have done it. So just do this simple thing. He goes down to the Jordan, he dips, he comes back out, his skin's totally healed, and he's just like a child again, right? Like his, his, from the skin standpoint, he doesn't like DH. Um, so he comes out, he's very thankful. He goes back to Elisha and he wants to pay him and Elisha said, no, this is not how this works. This is from the Lord. The Lord has healed you. You need to be thankful to the Lord. So this is what he says in 2 Kings 5. Then Naaman said, if not, if I can't pay you, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king he's talking about, goes into the house of Rimen, foreign god, main god of Syria, to worship there, leaning on my arm, which is Naaman's job, and I bow myself in the house of Rimen, when I bow myself in the house of Rimen, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. If you were Elisha, what would you say? Naaman, 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 Naaman. You really don't get it, do you? Like the God of the universe just healed you. You have to come and you have to worship in Jerusalem or you have to worship near the tabernacle. You can't do that. This is crazy. Elisha says to him, go in peace, which means sounds good to me. Go in peace to the Lord. That means that Naaman's going to get two mule loads of dirt, truck loads of dirt, and he's going to march all the way back to Syria and he's going to dump it Sounds like in the temple of Rimen. Don't know how that worked, but apparently he could do that. And then when he bows down to this foreign God, he's, it's going to be clear that he is just bowing down to the God of Israel. And that's worship. Now, please don't, like, bring your dirt in here next week and dump it right down here, you know, because we'll have to get the shop back out and everything. But what I'm... What I want you to see is this is incredibly creative and different and nobody else came up with this and Elisha says, go in peace. And this is how Naaman is going to worship the Lord. One of the ways. Creative. Mephibosheth, Naaman, and then finally a sinful woman. So Jesus is the, is the house of a Pharisee. Uh, Simon, I believe is his name. And so in, uh, he uh, is eating there with him and a sinful woman learns that he is there, and this is what happens. So this is in John, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 7. 
And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, very expensive, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She doesn't even want to be recognized that much. Behind him, weeping, uh, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. By any kind of means, like I've heard people try to explain this away. This is totally inappropriate for her. Hair down, touching his feet, uh, just the most inappropriate customary thing that you just wouldn't do this. Um, the, the rabbis taught that a disciple of a rabbi, the rabbi could tell them to do anything but untie their sandals, but loosen their, their sandals. So only a slave or a servant could do that. Plus she's a woman. This is inappropriate for a woman to treat a man in this time. So Simon gets mad. She's a sinner, Jesus. <laughs> if he'd have known who she was, he wouldn't have let her do that. You know what Jesus says? He tells a parable to teach him a lesson. And he says, you know, she has been forgiven much, therefore she loves much. And this is not going to be taken away from her. And he tells her, go in peace, your sins are forgiven. Says pretty much the same thing that Elisha said to Naaman. How creative is this as an act of worship? And, it, you know, it's, it, it's cool, too. We use the word reckless outpouring that God summons like it just spills over. She's a beautiful example of this, right? She just expresses everything that she is thankful for. So those are three examples. There's many more in Scripture and probably many more among us. The true worship is an enduring expression of, of love. Love toward God, love toward people. When you do that to the least of these, you do it to me, he says, right? That's what we see pictures over here. There's the diversity of worship. Again, we talked about style and substance of it and like, well, I don't, I'm not really into music. I'll just sit there and that, hey, that's fine. Like, read the words. Think about that as it applies to you. If you see something that's totally different like I did in Honduras or Haiti or, uh, or yeah, I was in a, a Chinese, church in, uh, Chinese, Chinese church in Toronto one time, and that was an incredible experience. I don't know why. I woke up and I had a little bit of time. I'm like, I'm going to go to a Chinese church here. That sounds good. It was awesome. Um, just because it's different doesn't mean it's not worship. Or it may not be your preference, but it is the diversity of what God has put together. None of us do the same thing. We have teachers, and we have carpenters, and we have bankers, and we have all kinds of different things that we do that are our calling and the things that we can express the love of Jesus, the love of Christ towards him and through the service of others. So think about the diversity of worship and what we all bring together. Daniel mentioned chapter 11 of Hebrews um, in talking about faith. Uh, there was a quote from Unceasing Worship that says, Faith sees everything that we do as glorifying God. Through faith, I know that when I see a patient, when I treat a patient, or when I'm kind to somebody at the gas station, or when I, uh, you know, I'm teaching kids at 9.30, third through fifth graders, everything that we do through faith is seen as a, an expression of worship, is glorifying God. But it doesn't change 
Listen to this part. It doesn't change the substance of what we do or create. Faith needs no external scaffolding for worship to become authentic. What I do is not suddenly somehow transformed to the point where I suddenly worship that because then we've made that an idol and idols are extremely difficult to wrestle from our lives. That song, I wish they'd play it every time the same way and when they don't play it that way, the drums were too loud, the guitar was too much, man, that was a different way that I'm used to that. I really can't worship that way. Hmm. So now we've placed our faith in that one thing, right? Or that, or just the opposite. That can't be worship because it's not this. It doesn't apply to us. So there's a great diversity of worship. And finally, the chorus of worship. When you take individual authentic worship plus community, then we have big C church worship, okay? And again, we just said God inhabits the praise of his people. There's something about coming together and worshiping. Not that we don't worship at other times or we're limited in some way if we're not in a certain place or a certain time to worship. Don't allow Satan to throw that label at you and say, eh, you can't worship like this. Yes, you can. Because we can worship in spirit, through the Holy Spirit, and in truth towards God and towards other people as an expression of our worship to God. Lots of visions of worship. Isaiah is one in chapter 6 where we see all these things going on um, with, uh, with what Isaiah saw. Look at this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered their face. Two, he covered his feet. Two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The posture of Isaiah here is worship. But look at what else is going on in the worship of God and what he ordains. Or go and skip to Revelation and see all the myriad ways that he pulls all of creation together and all of the saints from every tribe and nation together to worship in the plurality of this beauty of what he deserves. How dare we limit it to one way? in his church. That's a beautiful thing that we're missing in that. Now, for first in 1 Corinthians, we do find out that the gifts that God was giving, like speaking in tongues, uh, was being misused and being elevated over other gifts and being touted as the one way to do things. So there is order in that. And you know what? It's beautiful because the Holy Spirit really gives us that context. The Holy Spirit orchestrates and organizes us. First Peter 2, 4 through 5, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God builds us together, not just as a body, but also as a body that worships. So God puts all the parts together and there's order in that as he orchestrates it. So corporate, our corporate gathering together today and other days is reflected in order and harmony. We tend to focus on style and substance, but God wants to diversify that out and bring it all together. God wants to really do things orderly with harmony 
but we tend to focus on style and substance. We tend to focus on individual instruments instead of the full orchestra of how they fit together. So in the true diversity of worship, such a great picture, we all have different stories. We are all diversely working out our salvation, and the Holy Spirit is at work making us some of the parts. Your story, in other words, where God has brought you, where he's taking you, where, where you are right now and where he's taking you is all different, and we can share that in different ways. We are all diversely, individually working out our own salvation, as Scripture calls us to do. But the Holy Spirit is at work making us some of all those parts, putting us together as the church. So as the worship team comes back up, I have two closing questions here. Sorry for going over time a little bit. If we did not gather, okay, hypothetical, if we didn't have this gathering time, um, what, how would we approach and practice your Christianity? If you knew you were not going to gather here, how would that change things? Would you just stop because this is all? Is this it? Because there's many places in the world that have to do this, right? Or do we continuously outpour our worship to God through what we do throughout the week in our homes and at work and in the church? And then finally, what applications would this imply for your worship if you had to do it that way? Let's pray. Father, uh, you were majestic and you were mighty and you were terrible and, and in the best kind of way, Lord, with the things that you can do in your might and in your graciousness and your love. And Lord, you extend that to us through your mercy, through Jesus Christ. God, help us to be uh, continuously outpours of that praise in everything that we do that we do it here in corporate gathering, but we also do that and look for ways to do that intentionally in our lives so that when we leave this place, we leave as continuous, relentless worshipers that are outpouring our lives to you. Father, open our hearts to hear your word. And Father, thank you for the grace that you so fully extended us through your son.